Langton, a poem titled The Tree of Knowledge. I noticed that most of my students were gazing longingly out the window on an unusually beautiful Southern California morning. I paused in my lecture to discover that they were collectively noticing the unusual exploding on the tree just outside our window. What kind of fruit is that? They wondered with more curiosity than they had ever shown for Plato or Rousseau. And so I told them about the pomegranate, how according to the Quran, it filled the gardens of paradise, how its image had once adorned the temples of Solomon, how it doomed Persephone to Hades, how it symbolizes prosperity and fertility in Hinduism, how it came here to us, from the Iranian plateaus to Turkey, across the Mediterranean, and transported across the oceans by the Spanish conquistadors. How the city of Kandahar, now bombed and ravaged, was once reputed to have the finest pomegranates in the world. I told them that this was my favorite And then we all went outside for a moment to marvel at this tree, just staring for a moment while the wind blew across our faces, a tender caress across the ages. And then the moment was gone. The next day, I walked into class and someone, anonymously, had placed a single pomegranate on my desk at the front of the class, an altar before 30 students, all newly baptized, the red stain of pomegranate seeds outlining their smile. And now Leah will share our opening song this morning. If it's been a while since you've seen The King and I, I'll just remind you that Mrs. Anna was acquainting her students with the existence of snow. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. You are precisely my cup of tea. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and when I am with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed, suddenly I'm bright and breezy because of all the beautiful and new things I'm learning about you day by day. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, getting to hope you like me, 
getting to know you put in my way but nicely that you are precisely my cup of tea getting to know you getting to feel free and easy when i am with you getting to know what to say haven't you noticed suddenly i'm bright and breezy because of all the beautiful and new things i'm learning about you day day by day hey, hey, hey i'm learning day Well, good morning and welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Karen Schofield Leka. My pronouns are per and pers, shorthand for person. And I'm so glad that you are here this morning, whether you're here in the room or joining us via our Facebook feed. Visitors and guests, we hope you got a blue name tag that helps us know that you are visiting with us today and we can welcome you and answer any questions that you might have about Wes. We certainly love talking about what makes this community special to each of us, and we are especially interested in learning about what has drawn you to us today and what you're looking for. So we hope you'll join us for coffee and cookies after the platform service in the lobby and sobriety and filled it out. You can drop it in the collection basket later. That lets us give you, a, a, you know, an update about the activities that are coming forward, and we invite you to join us as another way to get to know us. I want to remind everyone to please silence your electronic devices so that both you and your neighbors can be fully present this morning. But while you have it out, you could check in on social media. And now I invite Adam Goldberg forward to one of our very friendly ushers to come read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. And as Adam lights our community candle, I invite you to jo all jo join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world. And today I'm especially thinking of Native American and black mothers who suffer pregnancy-related deaths at three times the rate of white mothers. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves 
Trust all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you now into a time of meditation. I encourage you to settle into your seat, relaxing your body, stretching, shifting, until you find a comfortable way to sit so your body is at ease. Take a big breath in and let it out. deeply and evenly, feeling the rhythm of your breath. I will lead us through a guided meditation, followed by a period of silence. We enter this time of meditation and then silence with mixed emotions. This is Mother's Day, a day set aside to honor those women who gave us birth. And yet we may have complicated, difficult, even unhappy associations with mother. Let our time today be one of recognition that we arrive from so many places, joy and delight, wistfulness and longing and worry, unmet needs and unfulfilled dreams, loss and sorrow, emptiness and regret. Let us hold ourselves tenderly and with compassion. If you have carried a child or children, whether or not they came to be born. If you have fervently wished to do so and circumstances of fate made it impossible. If you have lost children through abortion, miscarriage, stillbirth, killed or dying long before their time. If you love children we cannot see because of option or if you never wanted to be a mother, if you mourn for your mother, whether separated by death, dementia, or disconnection, if you are happy to mother other people's children as an educator or an auntie, if your mother hurt you physically or emotionally, if your mother is or was your very best friend, if you had no mother at all. If your gender says you are not a mother and yet you take on the role of nurturer. If you are a single mom, more than one mom, stepmom, adoptive mom, or used to be dad. If you wonder whether your mothering has been enough. And if yours is a different path altogether, we honor your unspoken story. Let us turn aside from the myths of motherhood on a pedestal and remember each parent is an imperfect human in need of more support than adulation. Instead, may we use this time to reflect on those who have mothered us, the women in our lives who have shown their love for us, whether through motherhood or mentoring, those tough, gentle, telling, wise, whimsical women who have served as our teachers, our mentors, our guides, our friends. 
Let us honor those who fill in for missing mothering, fathers, grandparents, foster parents, aunts and uncles, and more. Let us celebrate those who have nourished the light of truth and compassion in growing minds and hearts, mothers and foremothers, past, present, and future. Let us honor all on this day. May we hold in our hearts the truth that mothering, nurturing, is a task that belongs to us all. However old or young you are, whatever your gender, may you make extra room for nurturing in your life this week. And so, from whatever place of the Spirit we come this morning, let us enter into a time of silence. And in our shared silence, may we remember and reflect and create anew the stories of love and nurture from this point forward. For the greater good of all, greater good of all, greater good of all, greater good of all, you are here. For the greater good of all, greater good of all, the greater good of all, you are here. For the greater good of all, the greater good of so much, Karen, for those um, beautiful words in your meditation. And uh, Karen just whispered to me as he finished, that could be a song of the month. And I thought, song every day it was. <laughs> <laughs> 
That could maybe just be Wes's song. It's really lovely. So today, as Karen's meditation and words acknowledged, is Mother's Day, and it's a day that for some of us is just um, about celebration and pancakes, and for some of us is about um, you know multi-generational um, difficult relationships. So that's fun. My, uh, my own mother is a developmental psychologist, um, which is not always an asset, actually. <laughs> a lot of times, of course, it is. Can you just adjust down a little? I'm getting a bunch of S's on here. Thanks so much. Lots of times, of course, it is um, an asset, having a developmental psychologist for a mother. I have found that to be particularly true in my own parenting. To have somebody kind of on call, you know, to be able to say, here's what they're doing right now. It seems really strange, is it? Or how strange is it? Is it within the range of strange that you'd normally expect or really outside that, you know? And most of the time, uh, not always, she would say, you know, no, no, that's sort of, you know, within the range or, and this was her favorite, every time my children were going, especially in through some particularly difficult moment, uh, my mother would respond that it was just a developmental milestone they were about to reach. Oh, the developmental milestone coming. Oh, they're crying all night. It's a developmental milestone coming. I'm not sure if she was right, but I believed her and it helped me make through those long evenings of the soul. Then again, when I was a child, the same thing was true. Everything was a developmental milestone about to happen, a stage that I was going through. Um, I have a distinct memory, actually, of um, screaming at my mother when I was a teenager and having her respond very calmly um, that it was appropriate that I hated her at this time because it was my developmental task to individuate myself and... Um, react against her. And so she would be worried, actually, if I didn't hate her. Good job. <laughs> it really kind of takes the wind out of your sails, you know, when you're trying to work up to a full rage. <laughs> I'd like to note that I told my mother, um, who's visiting this weekend and will be at the 1130, um, that I was going to be talking about her this morning. Um, she threatened to then talk about me but she actually used me as a film subject for many years of her development. College students have seen me as a toddler and a five-year-old failing logical reasoning tests, you know. So I feel like we're already even. <laughs> it, is, it is helpful to have my own uh, private consult on developmental tasks. And one of the developmental tasks that each of us uh, go through in our lives starting very early, quite late, is that of seeing our own parents as full people in and of themselves. You know, we think about an infant just born who has no sense of self and therefore no sense of other. The world just kind of happens and is within internally and outside as well. I actually sort of think of early infanthood, pregnancy, but early infanthood as well as essentially a sort of parasitic relationship. 
relationship. And I think that's true um, in early infanthood, whether or not you were a parent who carried the child you are now taking care of. Many of you know how totally bonkers I am about babies. I just love nothing more than holding it. also like to be really truthful about what they are, tiny, adorable parasites, just basically barnacles, you know. One begins to see, though, that developmental task of acknowledging and knowing a self and therefore an other by about the second birthday. I did consult with my mother on this to make sure I got the dates right. Most children, as they are a milestone, and you can tell because they start to say no a lot. No is in response to something someone else wants them to do, right? They are understanding that they have a will themselves. and There is some other being out there who has another will, one they don't like. <laughs> the first self, the first other, and the first fight <laughs> between the two. I now have uh, a child who is fully in her tweens and who reminds me about every other day that she will soon be a teenager. It's really not actually that soon. It's still a couple of years, but that apparently is really right around the corner. She definitely understands that I am a separate other person than she is, and she is certainly a fully defined self but I'm not sure if she yet sees me as a full person. That task, the task of young adulthood and middle adulthood and beyond, of understanding our own parents as having motivations, challenges, gifts, weaknesses, hopes, Dreams, regrets that have nothing to do with us, that either predate us or are concurrent with our lives but not about us. The idea of a parent as actually a fully formed separate human being with a life of their own. It's shocking. I know, I hope especially the other only children in the room will relate to that experience. Sometimes, in fact, it's not until we go through ages and stages uh, that our parents have experienced ourselves that we begin to see our parents as fully formed and separate from ourselves. Perhaps that's when we parent or when we begin a first job or are fired from one when we leave home, when we lose a parent. In these moments of transition, we can begin to imagine how our own parents experienced those same stages. And we may then begin to imagine how our parent felt, separate and apart from how we felt or how we experienced them, how it affected our relationship. How did our parent feel? What motivated them? What did they hope for or fear as whole and full people? An understanding of the other 
as their full self. I think about this not just in terms of parents, though I think about it with my own children as well. The task of seeing my children as fully formed selves, separate and apart from their relationship with me. My mother was talking about the first time I came home from daycare, knowing a poem or a song she hadn't taught me. Someone had knowledge that she hadn't imparted. Suddenly she realized I was having a whole life out there that didn't always include her. I go back even further. I can remember with my first child the first time that um, she was as, a, as an infant in her first probably six weeks, the first time that someone else um, smelling like the babysitter's perfume. And I thought, oh, she's had her first relationship without The first beginning of her as a full self. It actually turns out, this may be a surprise, that every human being is a full self separate and complete, with a whole world around them. There's a word for this in English. It's a new word created in 2012 by John Koenig, who, as far as I can tell, has a career entirely made up of making up new words and um, then doing TED Talks about that. Um, All of the words are for complex emotions, things that we feel and can't just say specifically. And the word that he made up in 2012 is sonder. It has some relationship to German and French words. There's always a German word for that, right? German and French words. But here's what it means, according to Koenig. Realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as you. deep with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed, in which you might appear only once as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk. So I guess actually Koenig is a poet. (laughs) Sonder this realization of people having full and complex lives of which we know almost nothing. This month, as we talk about curiosity, I have been thinking about what it means to live with sonder, with that realization, and how curiosity ties into it. Many, many years ago, um, when I first started here at West, Chris McCubbin, a member of the congregation, gave a platform about um, internal motivation. And uh, she's a change management consultant in her professional life and so thinks a lot about what motivates people to change and what motivates organizations to change. And I will always remember a story she told about herself. She talked about driving down the highway 
and um, a car was speeding up and cut in front of her. And she thought, how rude. That's terrible. This car is just cut in front of me. You know, I'm doing everything right, and, and they're, just, they're just being a total jerk to cut right in front of me on the highway. And then she noticed that the car had a Washington Ethical Society bumper sticker on the back. And this is the part that sticks with me. She instantly thought to herself, oh, they must have a reason that they need to be somewhere. They must be terribly busy. I hope everything is okay. I've done the same thing myself sometimes. They must have a good reason for having to cut me off. It was an example for her in this platform of the way that when we don't know a person or their story, we are quick to assign and assume what is going on. What a jerk to cut me off on the highway. But if we have just a little insight into who they are, and she couldn't tell was just that they were part of this community, we are able to be more curious about what is going on for them internally. We are quick to assume intentions, to assume that we know what someone else means, to assume all kinds of things. And developing our capacity for curiosity can help in any number of situations. I think of everything from the person cutting you off on the highway to the grumpy customer service representative to your coworker or to your partner. I mean, obviously, in this room, if, if you are partnered, you certainly know what your partner is thinking. I'm sure you're correct, but they might not always know what you are thinking. The person that you're sure you disagree with, Curiosity can help in all those situations. I even think that curiosity can help us to get past some of the implicit bias that we carry around, or maybe more accurately, the stereotypes that we carry, which we all do, right? We all carry assumptions about people. Often those assumptions come out in a what are sometimes called microaggressions. That's kind of a term of art. It's a term that's come into use more in the last few years, or anyway, I've heard it more in the last few years. Um, and, and what it is is, is a micro, right, something small that is experienced by someone as aggressive, a microaggression, often not intentional, not conscious perhaps, but, but communicating a negative prejudice that we might have. And as you can imagine, though any one of us might carry around all kinds of assumptions about people, those microaggressions feel particularly painful when they link into some of the isms in our world, sexism or racism or homophobia, the different structures that separate us from each other and create power differentials in our world. So microaggressions sometimes come across where you know, really the intention could have been pretty nice. I, I remember one of my very early preaching gigs. I was in my mid-20s and was just trying things out as a student in seminary and went to a little congregation to, to speak. And afterward, I had a, a gentleman come up to me and say, um, 
you know, I think what you said was nice, but what I really loved was looking at your face. Hey, thanks. I guess that's sort of a little bit weird. I, I asked friends for versions of microaggressions that they had experienced that displayed essentially like a, a lack of curiosity about the individual and an assumption of stereotypical behavior. Here's what some of my friends came up with. Asking any random Asian American help with math, assuming they would be good at it. Right? Nice to think someone might be Someone else um, noted that she has a um, multiple decade background in tech. Google search and try to teach her how to use her smartphone. A lot of microaggressions are basically about grouping people into one big lump, right? You know, and, and some stereotypes may have basis in reality. The tech one, I think about, you know, sometimes we talk about generational differences, natives to uh, technology versus immigrants to technology. But to make the assumption that everybody fits in that is not to see and look for the individual person, right? People that we want a real relationship with deserve our curiosity, our interest about who they are rather than our assumptions. Now here's the trick, that curiosity both um, creates relationship and needs to be grounded in relationship. So another microaggression that I often hear friends talk about, particularly people who come from a multiracial background, is um, someone coming up and saying, where are you from? No, no, really, you know, they say Detroit. No, no, where are you really from? A neighborhood in Detroit. No, 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 I mean, I mean, you know, where are you really from? That kind of curiosity can feel intrusive, right, or downright hostile. And so I think sometimes when we encounter this new learning and, and, and learn more about how what we say can be experienced by someone, what the impact can be that perhaps doesn't match our intentions, we might feel as though, gosh, I cannot say anything. So here's the thing. Curiosity isn't just about asking questions, but also about listening to people throughout a conversation. The thing that is um, helpful about microaggressions is that because they're micro, right, someone might respond with just an ouch or a oh. And then we are invited to respond with curiosity. Oh. And can you tell me more how it felt to you? Can you tell me more what did I miss when I said it that way? Can you help me to do it better next time? Honestly, I sometimes think that about 50% of being in relationship with people who are different than we are is manners courtesy, listening, caring. If someone says, that hurts me, we say, I'm so sorry. Can you tell me more? Can I learn 
a relationship, when we're in a place of being emotionally worked up in a situation. You know, you might be anxious or upset with a person or with what's going on, and you find that um, rather than that fueling you, it's actually keeping you from being able to participate in the way you want to. I sometimes refer to this as um, uh, rather than owning your emotions, which is a really good thing, it's being owned by them, right? The emotions are in charge. They have their claws in you. Curiosity or even playfulness can help in those scenarios. Stepping back to wonder, what's going on here? Is there a system or a pattern that I'm missing? What might be behind this person seemingly, to me, really weird actions? Whether you call it getting up on the balcony or taking a bird's eye view or looking at the whole system, engaging that inquisitive, evaluative, investigative part of our brain can help us to shake free a little bit from the emotional claws that dig into us. We get to practice that in a community like this one. I certainly do. Sometimes I need to go right on up to the root. I need to look at the system as a whole. What is happening? And we also have tools for this work in a community like this one. Practical, philosophical ones. Ones that are about who we are at our core in ethical culture. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, talked about what he referred to as the supreme ethical rule. I always feel like that kind of reads a little bit culty, just a tiny bit. So, um, so I like how I've heard other people refer to it, the platinum rule. You know the golden rule, right? Where you, know, you do unto others as you would have them do unto you, articulated in many different religious traditions and philosophies around the world in slightly different ways. The platinum rule and Adler's supreme ethical rule invites us to do unto others as they would have us do unto them, to elicit the best in another person. And to do that, of course, you have to figure out what that best might be. Another might not actually want to be treated just the way you do. They might for something different. Well, to fulfill that platinum rule, we need to learn about each other more deeply. Ask the questions. To be curious. Is that how you hoped I would talk with you or a different way? Did you like the way we did this or like something? else instead, something different than I might imagine. So I have some assignments for you to finish off our platform. You may choose any one of them or for extra bonus points, all three. The first is about curiosity in our families. Family systems, which is a field that I find particularly helpful and study a fair amount says we don't have to like all our family members, but we do need to know them and know their stories. So assignment one is to ask a family member this week a story about themselves growing up. Extra gold star if it's a family member with whom you sometimes experience. What was it like in your neighborhood? 
what was your elementary school like? Pick a topic and ask. And then just listen. Assignment number During coffee hour, ask one person here that you've either never met or that you have met and thought, oh, that person's probably not going to be my uh, BFF, a question about how they grew up. Maybe whether they were raised in a religious tradition or not, how they found their way here. Actually, sheets in the social curiosity wall in there and a little packet of sheets with questions. Grab a partner and ask a question and listen. And number three, for an extra adulting badge this week, if you find yourself annoyed by someone in the next seven days or 20 minutes, whichever, stop, move back, and ask a question of yourself or of them right in that moment that brings curiosity into the conversation. What else might be going on in their life right now? Can you say more about why you feel that way? Imagine, just imagine that everyone has as complex and rich a life as you do. That everyone has complicated reasons for doing things. Everyone messes up the way that you do and tries to do better the way that you do. Live in Sonder, the realization of that whole complex world. And by all means, if you complete even one of those assignments, let me know how it goes. I am curious.
heart of gold as I'm growing older. I keep a searching for a heart of gold. I've been a miner for a heart of gold. Everywhere I'm finding hearts of gold, yes. Searching for a heart